Welcome to Atmospheric Tales, a podcast that amplifies stories and experiences related to air pollution and climate change from around the world. I'm your host Shahzad Ghani and welcome to another episode of Atmospheric Tales. Our interview for this episode is Dr. Noor Ilyani Izani. Ilyani is an academician and researcher at the Department of Environmental and Occupational Health, University Putra, Malaysia. She holds a PhD in Civil and Environmental Engineering and a Master of Science in Environmental Health from University Strathclyde, Glasgow in the UK. Her current research lies at the intersection of air pollution and its health effects. Our guest is the co-founder of a youth climate justice group called Klima Action Malaysia or Kami. Kami works to mobilize the declaration of climate emergency in Malaysia by empowering frontline communities, youth and women. Kami also produces climate advocacy content by reinterpreting complex climate information into a digestible form and giving it a human face. Currently, our guest is also a media research fellow at Climate Tracker. I'm excited to welcome our guest Eli Nadia Zulfkar. Welcome to the show Nadia and Eliani. Thank you Shanza. Hi Nadia. Hi everyone. Nadia, we are really glad to have you here. You are the chairperson of the organization uh, Klima Action Malaysia. It's a grassroots uh, organization, climate movement it calls for an urgent and you just respond to climate change in Malaysia. Can you start us off by telling about how climate change is affecting Malaysia and the impacts on different groups of people? Thank you, Eliani and Atmospheric Tales Podcast for inviting me to be in this podcast. Thank you so much. First of all, I'd like to mention that climate change, climate impact is non-homogeneous. It depends on you know, the geographical uh, state, uh, place where you are living in, and also your social economic background. So what we are actually saying right now, we're not talking about you know, the, the future, talking about the present. We're already seeing, especially right now, floodings going on, not only in Malaysia, but throughout Asia. We're experiencing uh, precipitation above average and uh, floodings everywhere. Um, we have in, in Malaysia, a few weeks ago, there was uh, a massive uh, flooding in the northern part of Malaysia, in Kelantan. And also to that, we, because of this change of uh, alteration of the energy balance, in the uh, atmosphere or the earth energy systems, we are seeing a lot of extreme weather events, for example, like I said, you know, precipitation above average. And also in Malaysia, we have, you know, heat waves or maximum temperatures that goes on for prolonged periods of time. And at this point, we are seeing crop failures. Um, We have no rain, it's too dry. For example, earlier this year, we had incidences where the paddy crop in in Mada, which is in northern part of Malaysia, has failed. Uh, Certain villages don't get enough water to irrigate their paddy paddy fields. And these are continuous things that we've been seeing year after year. And this has been documented in a lot of journals and in a lot of governmental documents. But sadly, people have not really kind of make any link from this kind of impacts and uh, climate change. And in the future, uh, we would see a 1.5 degrees uh, Celsius hike would, would lead to the ocean temperature rising up. And at that point, coral bleaching 
would perpetuate and we would see the death of, you know, this really beautiful ecological habitat that we have in the ocean. And with that, also the wildlife distribution alterations everywhere. So the impacts are massive. And the impacts will be much more felt in places near to the equatorial, especially in Southeast Asia. And when we say, and when you said the impacts on different groups of people, I like to highlight this story that I got from an indigenous leader. Uh, I would say he's living in Pahang. So he mentioned to me in the last few months, there has been like three separate incidences of flooding at his kampong, at his village, which has never happened before. And he has lost a lot of his crops failures, he has lost his you know, items, his personal belongings and etc. And this time of the year, especially right now, is supposed to be the year, the time where they plant their paddy but the soil is too moist and it kept out raining so they can't plant their paddy because they need to clear up the land. They're using slash and burn. They, they're using their indigenous knowledge how to control fire, how to keep you know, adding nutrition to the soil. And having a lot of rain does not help in this. And uh, they ended up not having to plant anything. So especially in COVID-19 right now, this is very dangerous, I think, for food security for certain communities. Yeah, that's a, that's a great start of the telling with this bigger picture. What are the awareness level around climate change in Malaysia? For example, uh, how has the awareness and the engagement translated into action following the climate change rally last year? The climate awareness and literacy in Malaysia is still very low. Merdeka Centre actually came out with a survey a few years ago. I think it was in 2016. Around 70% of the respondents believe that climate change was caused by human activities. So a lot of people believe in, you know, climate change. But then when we talk about climate impacts, people are still not very clear on the linkages. For example, in the survey as well, only 20% believe that climate change will increase the severity of storms. Only 17% believe that climate change will increase droughts and water shortages. 14% believe that this will lead to rising sea levels and shoreline erosion and 11% believe that this would, would harm the, the wildlife and destroy habitats. So that is the kind of challenges that we face that people at large still do not understand how these impacts are related to climate change itself. So the awareness and literacy is still very low. And um, when you ask, how has this engagement um, when we did the, the climate rally last year has contributed to more awareness, etc.? I think the, the group is still very young. We are still around one year, six months, year old. It's still very young, but we've already seen some of the, the small little victories that we saw. We have uh, indige indigenous communities coming up to us, asking us, please tell us, our teachers, what is climate change? How does that impact our life, etc.? We have indigenous communities started to speak out, started to use this kind of, you know, terminologies, etc., especially when they are talking to their constituency, they're talking to their MPs, they're talking to the corporations that's coming up and coaching onto their land, using this kind of terms. And knowing this empowers people 
so to speak. And this also brings the climate discourse from the urban narrative to the outer part of Klang Valley, so to speak. And more people are speaking climate change in Bahasa Melayu. I think it's a very important thing to distinguish because climate change has always been spoken in English and the information has always been you know, perpetuated in English. And that means we have a large part of the demography of Malaysia that does not read about this, does not know about this. So having to reach people from outside our circle is some of the small little victories that we are making. Oh, that's such an inspiring story about what have you done. Let us talk some more about uh, Klima Action Malaysia and how did it start? You mentioned that it was like started one year and a half. And can you tell us about your journey leading to this organization and uh, what does the organization do and where it is headed? We were practically an organization that was born from the streets. We mobilized ourselves on the streets. So that's what happened um, last year after the first global climate strike. So at that point, we decided that, you know, Malaysia needed this kind of peaceful dissent, so to speak, because, you know, negotiations are not enough. There's political inaction and the people's voice is really critical in moving this kind of agenda towards a really faster a pace, which I would say is very lacking in Malaysia. And at the start, we, we thought about just doing climate strikes, to be honest. We wanted to do more rallies, more demonstrations, more capacity building kind of workshops. And then we realized halfway that it would be much more effective if we would have a team doing advocacy as well. Because we thought that doing strikes, uh, doing rally demonstration is very confrontational and not a lot of people who wants to take that risk go down to the streets. But then we also have a group of people who likes to speak, who likes to, you know, do documentation, who likes to do research and things like that. And these are really important people that we shouldn't be isolating. So uh, that's the reason why the organization now has, has grown beyond the streets. We want to be more inclusive. We want more groups you know, regardless of their background, you know, it could be gender groups, it could be students group, a human rights group, because climate discourse is very multidisciplinary. You can't, can't do climate action without making sure that all these voices, all the other social justice are being accounted for and are being implemented and incorporated into any kind of uh, climate solutions. So basically what we do is we started to speak with different groups and uh, we try to lobby and train different groups to incorporate climate change agendas because these groups are already big. They have a proper structure. Rather than having one group doing everything, it would be really faster if we have other groups doing the same thing, having the same vision. So that is our long-term aim. As part of KAMI and generally, you work to uplift the voices of indigenous peoples. Can you tell us more about your work on making justice an integral component of the climate movement in Malaysia? And uh, do you also work with international climate movements and a struggle of uh, other indigenous peoples? Yes, absolutely. 
I think I, I answered the second question first. So uh, we do work closely with other international climate movements, climate groups, and also other civil society movements as well. For example, we have been working very closely with uh, 350.org, which was the main, uh, one of the main organizers for global climate strikes. And we are also mobilizing Southeast Asia Climate Coalition at the moment. We have spoken to different groups, different youth groups, and not necessarily just youth, but we really wanted to create this kind of coalition, a strong network of climate change organizers across Southeast Asia. And in order to to create this kind of coalitions, there there needs to be a lot of uh, conversation. We can't definitely meet up with each other at the moment. We do a lot of our engagement and mobilization digitally. So I have to like stress this uh, this really important point that there's one good thing of this, uh, what COVID-19 has done is to actually push people to use the online platforms because prior to this, we really like, you know, going out and for meetings and etc. But by utilizing the digital platforms, it really opens up, you know, the networks, uh, finding out the right kind of people, the right kind of group. So that is what we're doing with the um, international or regional climate movements that we have in uh, Southeast Asia and Malaysia. That being said, we also train some few youth groups, not only in Malaysia, but also in in other countries as well, in terms of uh, mobilizing uh, for climate movements. So I saw this question about struggles of other indigenous people. So we work closely with several uh, indigenous communities, partly because we think that they have the kind of resilience, the kind of knowledge that we have often overlooked, especially in terms of uh, safeguarding the forest. A few months ago, before we had a change of government, we had Mastec. So Mastec's main priority was mainly towards mitigation in terms of energy efficiency, etc. But not towards forest protection and all sort of things. And I really think that incorporating forests, because forest is like, I would say, you know, a technology that we already have to, you know, mitigate and absorb as much as carbon as soon as possible. And um, that is not being put forward. That is not being, you know, the priority of the the, the previous uh, ministry. So we really hope that would change. And indigenous justice, uh, land rights issues, these are very important elements when we talk about climate justice because climate change is not only about the degradation of environment, it's also the, the violations of human rights because you know, perpetuating all this, it it leads to more ecological degradation. So having to work and understand the struggles of Indigenous people and showing support and solidarity is really important. And uh, we have worked with um, different kinds of of communities, uh, Indigenous communities in Peninsula Malaysia and also one community in Sabah. It's really hard, uh, especially we are talking about issues that are so abstract. But when we talk about, you know, floodings and, and haze and etc., everything clicked because they they work with the land. So they understand, you know, the changes of climate is really important to their, you know, knowledge of managing their land, managing their crops. So that's how the challenges are for us at the beginning. And the first question you mentioned about making justice an integral component of climate movement. 
yeah, I think I've pretty much answered this. Climate justice is, is a concept. Um, not a lot of people really understood. People think like, what is climate justice? Is it justice for climate? No, it's about the understanding that climate change is beyond environmental degradation. It's about, um, you know, social justice as well. Because not incorporating the other social justice issues like gender equality, poverty, indigenous rights, migrant issues. These are the really important things that we we really need to speak about as well. Because if we, you know, just talk about the environment without incorporating all this, then this would be futile. Because what climate change does is it causes these social issues that we have and somebody told me it's it's a multiplicator so we need to understand this kind of linkages and these intersections are not being spoken about a lot in Malaysia. Yeah I concur about that and um, to hear that you know we've been doing a lot with Kami and um, in Southeast Asia Okay, it's a, we always talk about his issue or it's a transboundary air pollution. It's a big issue. How do you view action on, from the climate action vis-a-vis of mm. air pollution? Oh, absolutely. I'm just going to spoke on a, a transboundary haze pollution because it's such a huge issue. I would say I'm a haze baby because I was born. <laughs> uh, I grew up in the you know annual haze season and uh, it became so ingrained in me. Like I know it's going to come every year and I know that nothing's going to happen. I, I kind of accept I accept this kind of fate and this kind of mentality is common around youth everywhere in Malaysia. And um, some people think like, you know, oh, it's the hay season, it's a great reprieve, you know, for students not to go to schools, uh, you know, things like that. And that is something that is so dangerous to be comfortable because we, most of us in urban areas, we, we can't just you know, go back in, wear a mask, go back in, turn on the AC, and that's it, just hoping the, the wind and the rain would take the haze away. But imagining what is actually happening on the ground, what is actually happening in Indonesia, in these places where the forest fire is happening. That's a health emergency that is going on in these places. And it exacerbates climate change in the fact that, you know, it creates secondary carbon emission from peatland drainage, from peat oxidation. And this forest fire has led to gigatons of carbon being released in the atmosphere. Example, Indonesia in um, 2015 is the fourth carbon emitter in the world and most of it comes from the forest fire that happened in 2015-16. So the situation is very, it's a dangerous situation basically and the fact that we Malaysians, most of us, has really taken this to the very comfortable kind of, you know, uh, it's not a problem, it's happening in a different country so it's really not a problem. That is completely wrong because pollution is trans boundary like hail is very much transboundary and i think it's really important for us to to show support show solidarity uh, to the indonesian people who is suffering because this is not you know the um poor people burning these are i would say i, I cannot speculate this but there has been um, different kind of arguments, different kind of, I would say, camps speaking about this has been done by corporations, this has been done by small uh, plantation holders. But in the end, the land is burning 
and it's affecting the people on the ground. We have, if I'm not mistaken, thousands of deaths contributed to haze alone. And we have had the sky looking yellow. Uh, it looks like uh, the end of, you know, <laughs> it looks like the end, you know, when you see that kind of picture or visuals, but this is actually happening. And um, to say that the Indonesians are not, are not taking this seriously is completely wrong. I think the civil society needs to support each other and, and we need to dispel this kind of myth because um, I know that this could have a, a spillover effect to, um, you know, the Malaysian-Indonesian, you know, relationship and etc. But I think that we cannot just, you know, give up and, and stop. Yeah, it's true. It's uh, annual problems. We hope mm-hmm. that, you know, there'll be something very robust action. Hopefully, we just mm-hmm. hope for the best. Right, uh, moving on. You believe that climate journalism uh, shapes people's narrative through local climate stories and reinterpretations of cl- complex climate science. And to that effect, building the climate literacy of the people in Southeast Asia. Can you expand this idea for our listeners and tell us about the role and importance of such storytelling? I think this idea is, is not a, a new idea. It has been there for years, especially to the young generation that was before us has been bringing this kind of new ideas. And we're just picking up, building up from the previous uh, movement from young people. So simply because storytelling has a really vital um, importance, I would say, in terms of relaying or disseminating complex information because people are not really attuned to, you know, numbers, for example, to graphs. People, you know, like to see visuals. People like to see other people talking, or especially the communities affected talking, because this gives a human face to such a complex issue. And I do believe that although climate science in Malaysia is, is still not that, you know, we, we don't churn up a lot of climate science information, but it's really important to, to stress this, that, you know, there's a, a vacuum of documentation from people on the ground about climate impacts, like I said, you know, indigenous knowledge and how that is being impacted and how they are, you know, adapting to this kind of weather, this kind of climate. It's really important for us to know because we would like to know how it is to live in this kind of situation because it's going to be very real for us. And uh, we don't have this that kind of information. And I really, really urge the, the scientists, governments, you know, the initiatives to collect this kind of climate information and to present it yeah we could have documents we can have you know policy policy briefs and etc but it's really important to let the people also know for example what's been happening in these indigenous uh, communities what's been happening in rural areas what's been happening to our farmers to our fishermen fisher folks uh, this kind of communities living in in shorelines has seen uh, erosion or the fish or catch has been reduced so much we really need to amplify this story because when we talk about climate we always have to think about you know icebergs are melting and etc yes that is true but then the idea is so abstract and it's really important for us to link it to something that is actually happening here because otherwise you wouldn't get people you know to to make that kind of linkage 
and to start questioning, start to go to their MPs and say, why is this not being spoken in the parliament? Because the power of people is very much underestimated. I think we always thought that, you know, the end game is, you know, having a political action. But it cannot happen without the push from the people. We can have change of governments, but if the ideals of the people are strong, we would still pressure, you know, the next um, government, you know, any kind of change will not affect us that much. So I really stress um, the storytelling in terms of using, you know, visuals, you know, making it more compact and knowing, you know, how to use social media. That is, sorry, I think that is the most, one of the most important thing right now, social media. And uh, knowing how to market this kind of stories is is really important. For example, you know, uh, making it a one minute long kind of video, you know, knowing the attention span of young people is very short. How do we make sure that this would stuck in their minds and this wouldn't be something that they just swipe in Instagram? It would be something that would translate to an action. So putting in all this kind of information, making it into one simple um, content, it does sound like very complex. Although it looks really easy, but it's actually really complex. But it has a really, you know, great effect. It has a very effective, you know, impact on the people. And and right now, it's about rising up the awareness of people that which we don't actually have much in Malaysia. So uh, I think uh, storytelling is really important. Uh, apart from, you know, policy making is vital, but then the power from the people, it comes from such storytelling, such complex information dissemination in, in such a way. Yes, science communication, it's very important as a scientist and uh, translate to the, you know, the layman as well. That's uh, very important. Right, back to the youth engagement. And uh, the youth have really taken a lead on bringing the climate change discussion center stage and pushing policymakers to get serious about it. How will this influence other generations in Malaysia? to come along in this fight and advocate for the next generation. Okay, I, I do have to say, I don't quite agree with this statement, like with the youth taking the lead, etc. because climate action has always happened. It has, it has been here for such a long time. It didn't use the word climate per se, but it has used, you know, words like forest protection, biodiversity protection, you know, things like that. And these are critical elements for climate uh, solutions, really preserving forests, preserving our biodiversity these are all important elements and what the youth has done today is we are building up we are taking the baton away from the the older generation we are building from the past generation i think it's really important for us to recognize the the kind of hard work that has been done by previous generation and it's really important to understand what kind of challenges and gaps or even failures that has happened in a previous movement so that we don't fall trap, you know, into the same kind of mistakes again. So I think what the youth has been doing now is, is really amazing because we are not only building something from the past but we are also incorporating something new and i think it's really important for us to stress this that 
you know, the climate movement does not belong to the youth alone. Uh, because when you do that, you kind of put this kind of really big pressure on the youth themselves. Like they are, okay, literally we have to save the world or we have to solve everything. You know, it's, it's not just, you know, on us, it's on everyone else. And it's also going to impact the, the, the next future generation as well. I think it's really important for us to recognize this, that, you know, the previous generation, I'm, I'm saying about, you know, this, this forest defenders, this other social, other social movements, for example, women equality, you know, kind of social rights movements. These are really important because otherwise, if they don't do this, if there's no students, uh, you know, going, the, going down to the streets years ago, I wouldn't be here being so brave speaking about this. So it's really important for us to recognize all this and for us to move forward and incorporate new things because we can't be purists. We can't just like, oh, stay to one single narrow road. We have to be bigger and more inclusive and more diverse. So this is really important for us to to look for and to uh, make this sustainable for the future generation. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more yet. It's really true. And uh, finally, where do you draw your inspiration and uh, passion from this difficult uphill battle? And um, given that this is likely going to be a long fight, do you have words of advice about self-care for other people trying to reverse and prevent catastrophic climate change? I, I draw my inspiration and passion, I think, mostly from uh, the education and upbringing that I had and also the kind of associations that I made with uh, different communities, different people. I think I really looked up to uh, several community leaders that I have seen have shown strong leadership. You know, this these are uh, just my my personal opinion and and i think i kind of get the kind of energy you know i i really love to see that kind of energy to see that community leaders have done you know really great jobs in bringing up their people in in uh, mobilizing their people despite having all sorts of you know adversity against them they managed to persevere and I really, really looked up to these people to see that resilient is really strong. And I think that I should definitely aspire to be that kind of strong. And I would say my passion, <laughs> I, I come from a, a, a science background. So I do see the academic side of things. And um, it's really easy for academics to be so so indulged in, in finding you know all this information but then it was the, the connection between this information and people was lost and um, I think that is where I think I want to be you know in the next few years to bridge this kind of gap to bring in all these academics and, and people together is really, really important in the next, you know, in the next few years, next few decades. And like you said, it's going to be a long fight. You know, climate change is not going to happen, you know, in, in terms of five years. And then that's it. It's going to happen for decades. And I think it's really important to have young people to be prepared for this and not only young we are training the even the youngest one you know school children you know to to understand this kind of impacts because they are going to inherit the world from us and i think we need to make sure that people don't get tired or don't get burned out 
because um, like you said, this is going to be a, a, long, a long fight. Uh, this is not a, a sprint, but this is a marathon. So what I think we should do is we should uh, train ourselves. And then once we get all the capacity building happening, we train the others. So we keep on getting, you know, passing down the information, passing down the, the skills and everything to the, to, to the others, to the younger generation. I think it's really, really important to, to not be a gatekeeper. We, we have to share, uh, show solidarity and support. So um, that being said, I also wanted to, to give a tip to, you know, any young, you know, young people who wanted to do more to, to mobilize for their community or etc. Please reach out to others, you know, you cannot work alone, you have to reach out to others because, you know, doing something for yourselves and do, working in silo is so very tiring, you get burned out easily. But if you do it with others, you will get the support. You will get the advice from people who's, who has held, you know, more experience than you. You, know, you don't necessarily have to take the, the strategy just like that. But try to incorporate, try to think, you know, that how we can collaborate. I think that's a very important word here. Collaboration. And be as independent as you can. Because integrity in this kind of age uh, is really it's really rare to see. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's all from me. Thank you so much. Brilliant, brilliant. Oh, Nadia, I very much appreciated uh, the few thoughts that I had for the listeners. And um, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much. With that, I would like to thank our guest, Eli Nadia Zulfkar, and our interviewer, Noor Eliani Izani, for joining us on Atmospheric Tales. Please reach out to us via email or our social media channels to suggest topics, guests, or to be an interviewer on one of our episodes. Our contact information can be found on our website, atmosphericTales.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook and suggest questions for our upcoming episodes. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe and share.